You adulterous people. What a great verse to start on this morning, right? It's amazing how last week Thomas just stopped just short of that verse as we continue through our, our journey through the book of James. If you're new with us, we're just taking the book of James kind of verse by verse, and we're marking up our Bibles, and we're working through the text together. This is a great text. We're going to really talk about the conditions of our heart, and then hopefully get to the point where we are exalted in the end. So like Steve said, like buckle up. Let's get going and open up the Word, because the result, as we talked about last week, um, it, we learn that our desires and our passions are at war within us, right? And these desires, they're fighting and quarrels happen amongst one another. And the result is this, as we are self-centered people whose our motives and our passions and our desires pull us away from the Lord. And simply put, we don't get what we want. We covet what we can't attain. We become adulterous people. And this is kind of harsh language, but it's real. Adulterous peoples are one who are, in essence, cheating on God. James is referring to Christians committing spiritual adultery. Their attention, their affection, and their alliances or allegiances are not towards God and God's people, but they're towards themselves and the world. So let's open up James 4, and let's read James 4, 4 together. And it says, you adulterous people, and you might want to circle or highlight that. You, um, so it says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is en enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The world and God cannot kind of coexist at the same level. Friendship with the world means that you're against God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. A friend is of the world is a great word picture. At least a friend is a great word picture to help me think about it. Because if you think about it for a minute, what is a friend? A friend is someone that you would call in times of need. A friend is someone that you, you know really well, that you spend time with that you would identify with, that you begin to look like, to act like, to follow the same and similar values. And so when you're a friend with someone, a true friend, you have this special bond where you love, you care, you encourage one another. And if this is the same thing you're getting from the world, it's going to be in opposition of God. And that's why you become an enemy. And so a friend of the world, you become, you have this love for the world. You get your encouragement from the world. You get your wisdom from the world. You begin to look like the world, act like the world, think like the world. And that is in direct opposition of the world. Worldliness is adopting the philosophy of the world and living by it. And saying to God, your way isn't best for me. I have my own way and I feel like it is a better way to live. The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the desire of the heart overtake who we are and we begin to leave the things of the Lord. And instead of calling him master, we look at the other areas of our lives and we're attracted to them. This is what 1 John 2.15 says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all things in the world, all the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is in the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Father abides in the Father. 
We are here to do a job, and that job is to bring glory to God, not to ourselves. We are here to make God famous. We are here to exist, to abide in the will of the Father. The Westminster Catechism said this, The chief goal of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, which is impossible if we are identifying, living by, and loving the things of the world. When our hearts are lured away from the Lord, when our attentions, our, affliction, our, our affections, and our allegiances are for something other than the Lord, he bec- becomes jealous. Now, verse 5 here is one of the most difficult verses to translate in the entire New Testament. Testament. At least that's what I read in my reading the last few weeks, that there's lots of controversy on how you actually translate this verse. Let me help you understand why it's been a problem and how I best understood it in my study in this week. So it says this in verse 5, Or suppose it is uh, to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So the problem is that quotation you would never find in Scripture. And so when it says, the Scripture says, there's a confusion. Well, where in the Scripture is this exact verse? But I want you to think of it like this so that we have a better understanding. We've, we've heard it said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, and then there's, and so, sorry, let me, this way. We've kind of said, God, will, God loves you and he will never leave you. Well, that's not an actual verse in the Bible. It's a combination of a few different thoughts, like John 3.16, God so loved the world, or Hebrews 13, where it says, I will never leave you or forsake you, or uh, Romans 8, where he's talking about that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And what happens is we just combine that spiritual truth, and we say, God loves you, and he will never leave you. But that's not an actual scripture. And that's kind of what's happened here. This is, this, the scripture says, is a combination of a few different truths that happen in the Old Testament, where he says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Another problem that comes up is what does this word spirit mean? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the human spirit? So there's a little bit of controversy over that. And so the best way I understand this verse is that God is jealous when our spirit, our human spirit, is distracted from him. See, God wants us and he wants all of us. God is a jealous God. We know that from the Old Testament. It says this, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. For you shall worship no other gods. The Lord, uh, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God, do not make any other idols above me. These are the scriptures that we hear about God, and then he wants you fully. And so that's been the, like, problem in the translation is what does the scripture actually say? And this is what I really believe it means. And it's connected to this fighting and quarrels and you adulterous people is that when you have a heart that longs for something outside of the things of God, God gets jealous because he wants your entire being, all your life domains, that we, he wants you to be fully devoted to loving God and loving others. And when you make an idol outside of something that isn't about him, there is jealousy that is a part of this. This is what enrages God, and he wants all of you. This is why we are adulterous people. And we see it throughout the story of God, like even in the Ten Commandments, right? 
you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, anything that is not from heaven above, nor that is in the earth beneath. This is what we learn about in the Ten Commandments. And so God wants nothing before him. And then we think about it personally in our own lives. What are there things that we might be finding our security in, our comfort in, our peace? Are there things that we place in front of God, our time, our energy, our money? Like, what are we putting in front of God? This is what makes him jealous. Are there things that we worship like sports or success or accomplishments? Is it something getting in the way of my worship? What consumes in my time? What is grabbing my attention, my affection, and my allegiance? Now, for me personally, and maybe some of you are in that same boat, I'm coming up on a very important time in, in my life, something that I've been working for over the years. I'm sending a kid to college here in about four months. And I have felt pretty, I'm just going to lay it on the table. I, I felt a little pride about working hard to save and to build this fund so I can help pay for my kid's college education. And I felt like this is something that I would look at, I would plan, I would make charts, you know, I'd have all these things. And I don't know if any of you else are experiencing this, but these first four months of the year have not been super fun in the market, right? And so I'm watching the savings that I put away for my kids' college fund go this way. And then I'm also just got the letter from the admission office that said costs for her college are going up this way, 15%. I said, okay, Lord, this is a real struggle in my heart. I'm doing everything that I think I should be doing. And it became kind of my pride, my idol. I'm going to have this taken care of. And then what I realized is I have no control over these things. And it was becoming an idol, an area of pride, something that I thought I was doing and not trusting the Lord. And the realization came when I was kind of complaining and sharing my thoughts like, hey, of course the year that I'm actually gonna have to tap into this fund is when this thing is tanking. And someone said, do you not trust the Lord? And I was like, well, do I trust the Lord? Sure. I'm like, don't you trust the Lord to take care of even these things, even when you thought you had a plan? Do you believe that God is holding all things together. And I realized this was an area of personal pride and personal like idleness, I guess. It was something that it was building a calf for me, not a literal golden calf, but it was something in my heart that was pulling me from the Lord. And it's not just that type of thing, it's, it's other things in my life that I see grab a ton of my attention and things that I want to think about more than I want to think about the things of God. Like I hear as I come on a Sunday morning, I love my kids and they get to do a lot of great things and they're, they're all playing sports right now across the state. And on my phone, I get updates all the time about what's happening with what's going on. And in my heart, I'm like, I just want to see what's happening. And I'm really good. I'll look online. Where are the brackets? What happens when they play? Are they win? Are they lose? What's their stats? And I have all this information. And sometimes what I realize is that this is capturing my heart rather than the Lord. And I get more focused on these areas than I do on the things of God. And it's concerning to my own life because I want the Lord to be 
first and foremost in everything I do. And when I read a verse like this, you adulterous people, I'm not saying you adulterous people. I'm saying I'm an adulterous person who I'm putting things in front of God. And then it says he's jealous because he wants all of me. He doesn't want just part of me. He wants all of me, my finances, my time, my energies, my thoughts, my actions, the way I love my neighbors, the way I talk about other people. He wants all areas of my life to be about him and so that I don't place my affection and my allegiance and my attention towards other things. And so he is jealous. But we transition, right? You might want to circle that but here in the next verse here in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. I love that James is like a good doctor. And he diagnoses the problem in our heart, the, the desires, the passions, the thing of this world that are, that are obtaining our heart. And he's calling us out and he's saying, you're adulterous people, you're making God jealous, but he gives grace to the humble. And he's going to give you a plan on how and what the remedy is for self-centered living. And the remedy for that is Repentance. Repentance is turning from what you were doing and turning towards the things of God. It's going in one direction and saying, Lord, I want nothing more to do with that. I want to do with the things of the Lord. And so this morning as we continue our time, I want to give you five words, because that's about as many as I can remember, and I can kind of put them on my hand. Five words to lead us towards repentance and to lead us to life in Christ. So you might want to circle these as we go along in our study, but here it is, starting with seven. Submit. Circle submit. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submission isn't a term that we like to hear in our culture. It isn't something that we want to do all the time. But what it really means is that you're placing yourself or you're accepting or yielding to a superior force to the will or authority of another person or to God, that you are saying, Lord, whatever your will is, that's what I want in my life. So basically saying, Lord, Lord, I want to submit to all things that are you, and I want you to be the authority over my life. And in a culture of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, is celebrated being able to make it on my own is something that we get excited about. The Lord is saying, no, I want all of you. Submission to God is voluntary. It is my choice to place myself under the authority of God and God's ways, to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and master of my life. Submission to, some, to authority shows one's genuine humility. And that's what we want. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Genuine humidity. humility has happened here. Submission is modeled for us even in the life of Christ. I don't know if you remember, but right in the garden before his crucifixion, Jesus asked the Father this. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
Like Jesus, in the moment before his crucifixion, is saying, Lord, I do not want to have to go to the cross. It is all possible. That was the desire of the heart of Christ. But he then says, Lord, it is not my will, but your will that I want done. He's placing himself in submission to the Father. And so we have a great example in our Lord and Savior Jesus of what submission and humility really looks like. We see it in Philippians 2, which is the great kenosis passage, the emptying of Christ, where he says, you know, do not consider um, any by selfish ambition. Oh man, I'm just butchering that. But he, he places himself under authority because he's considering the interest of others above himself. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But humility, consider others above yourself. And Christ humbles himself and takes on the um, humanity even to the point of death. That's what submission looks like. That's what humility looks like. That's the posture of submission that we need to say to the Lord is, I give up. I give up on trying to do it my own way. I acknowledge your way is best. I want to live life under your authority. I want this to be how I live my life. I felt like this was me in college where I had a lot of understanding of my own and I, think, I thought I had things figured out. But what I really realized was that I was living my life like the foolish man who built his house on the sandy shore. And when the winds blew and the rain fell and the floods came and the waves beat against the house, it fell down. That was my life to a T. I built my, my life on my own desires, my own passions. And when those things no longer were worth anything, it all came crumbling, crumbling down. And I remember submitting my life to Christ in that moment saying, Lord, I want to live by your way because my way is not working for me anymore. Submission is a key, uh, a key idea in repentance. So number one is submit yourself to the Lord. Number two is resist the devil. Resist the devil. Friends, we have talked about it before that we are in a war. A war that is not between flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. Like, we are in a battle. And so this word resist is a military metaphor urging Christians to stand our ground against the enemies. It's that, that you know, stand firm idea that happens in Romans in Ephesians 6 with the armor of God, that you need to stand firm, stand your game. You resist the devil. The devil is a roaring lion who wants to make you ineffective and unproductive in your faith. He wants you, he wants to take things, he wants to put things in your life, he wants to distract you from your relationship with the Lord. And so friends, you need to learn how to resist the devil. You need to do what Jesus did in like Matthew 4. Remember the temptations when the devil came to tempt him with the seduction of self-sufficiency, the seduction of self-importance, and the seduction of power. Jesus was able to give him word after the word of God back to him over and over again. This is how we resist the devil is that we know the word of God. It's filled in our heart. And so when temptation comes, we can, we can refute the devil. We can Say, this is what I want my life to be about. I do not want it to be about those things. I rely on Jesus to work it out. I, I don't have it all figured out, 
but I want Jesus to help guide me in these temptations. Resisting the devil is something that you have to do consistently. You have to be on guard because his tactics are all the time. They come at us in a variety of different ways. And so you have to be on guard regularly so that you can resist the devil. The promise there is that he will flee from you. And this gives me great hope when I resist the devil, he will flee from me. And we see this in the temptation. The, the enemy comes over and over again to Christ and he gives him the word of God, the word of God, and then the devil is gone from that permission, that, that scene because it didn't work. Now, will it continue to happen? You bet. And so you have to continue to be on guard all the time. And so you have to, so you have to su submit, you have to resist. And the third idea here is draw near to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This verse was one I held on to personally in college because it was one that came back to me all the time. That I, when I was serious about following Jesus, I wanted to come back to this verse because I wanted to learn what it meant to draw near to God. And if we think about the story of God and, and what it meant to approach the God, to draw near to God, this was kind of a foreign concept to first century Christians because there was this, the priest was the one who really draw near to God on your behalf, remember? But then the curtain was torn and so now we have the ability to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is what Psalm 24 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false. The NIV renders, renders that verse as who does not lift up his soul to an idol. Who can be in the presence of God? Who can stand in his presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to an idol. And here it is again. Do you want to draw near to God? Clean your hands. That is kind of the, the outward way. It's, it's, it's cleansing your house, dealing with our actions, behavior. It's this idea of stop doing evil. Purifying our hearts is inward. Dealing with one's thoughts and motives. It's stop thinking evil. That's who gets to draw near to God is when you cleanse yourself. And we've been cleansed by the body and the blood of Christ. God is holy. We need to approach him with confidence, knowing that those who have confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved and you have the ability to approach the Lord with confidence. This is what it says in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, 22 says this, let us draw near with a heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We draw near to God through the blood of Jesus. We are able to draw near um, to God with full assurance of faith, knowing that we have been made right and made clean. And so we need to submit, we need to resist, we need to draw near, and we need to mourn. And here's what I mean by mourn. Here it is in the later part of that verse. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Friends, I, I hope you know that it's not about being depressed all the time and mourning because there is laughter and we should rejoice in the Lord always. But I think what's being said here is this idea that we need to take our sin seriously. This verse calls for repentance, for repentance to grieve our sin, to experience a deep feeling of shame and regret because of our disobedience and our rebellion against God. Mourning and weeping are outward evidences of the sense that we are wretched. We need to feel genuine, genuine remorse of our wickedness, and we don't want to make a joke out of it. We want to take our sin seriously. Worldly people do not understand rebellion against God's ways is a serious offense against a holy God. And so we need to be serious and take the time to mourn and to get things right with the Lord. Today we live in a culture that is tolerant of all types of sins, accepting all types of evil. And Romans 1 told us that this would be the case, that people would be full of envy, murder, strife, strife deceit, malice. They would be gossip, slanders, haters of God, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They would reject the things of God. And so we cannot take our sin seriously because the Lord takes sin seriously. We need to mourn the ways we've rebelled against God and we need to put ourselves under the authority of the creator of the universe and call him Lord, Master, and Savior. Now, remember, I, I said that there's a remedy for these things. And so when we submit, when we resist, when we draw near to God and we mourn, and we mourn look at the last verse in 10 this morning. It says this, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You might want to circle, highlight, whatever you need to do to remember that is the promise that we have, is that you will be exalted. Not that we're great or that we are the one who's going to see you and he's going to exalt you because he loves you so much. And so when we turn from our idolatry, our spiritual adultery, from being adulterous people, and we turn to the things of God, we submit, we resist, we draw near to God, we mourn, and we're humbled ourselves, we will be exalted by the living God. In contrast to pride and selfish ambition, repentance is needed to gain true exaltation, which doesn't come from the world, but comes from God alone. That is what I want you to remember as we prepare to take communion this morning. That we would remember the work of the cross, knowing that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So we want to take some time to prepare our hearts to receive communion this morning. Maybe the words that we discussed this morning will guide you as you remember the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Savior. Maybe for some in this room that you haven't fully submitted your lives to Christ. Maybe for others... The enemy has control over specific areas of your life and that you need to begin to learn how to resist the devil. You need to learn how to use God's word to thwart his schemes. 
Today might be a time that you decide that you want to draw near to Christ, that you want to get things right so that you can approach him with a clean and a pure heart. Truthfully, maybe some of you haven't taken your sins seriously. Maybe you've never mourned the way that you've acted towards God, the way you've rebelled against him. Maybe between you and the Lord, you need to take some time to do some real work to prepare to take the elements this morning. I don't know where you are or what's been going on in your life. I know as I was studying this week, this passage continued to work on my heart and it continued to challenge me about the things in my life that were taking me from the Lord. And so my hope and my encouragement is that we would grow towards repentance and that we would submit ourselves to the Lord. We would resist the devil. We would draw near to God. And we would mourn and weep over the ways that we've rebelled against God. So that we humble ourselves that we would be exalted. Love for us just to take a minute and prepare our hearts in silence and quiet. And then we'll pray as we get ready to take the elements.